0: daily news and analysis, we keep you informed and inspired.
1: This is World Today.
2: Chinese Premier Li Qiang visits France and is set to attend the summit for a new global financing pact. U.S. President Joe Biden is hosting Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi for a state visit this week in Washington. Bangladesh formally applies to join BRICS. Welcome to World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, download our podcast by searching World Today. China and Germany have agreed that it's in the interests of both sides to deepen cooperation at a higher level. Chinese Premier Li Qiang and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz co-chaired the intergovernmental consultation in Berlin on Wednesday, and the two countries agreed to promote dialogue and cooperation on climate change. Peter Oliver is in Berlin with more.
1: It was all about business as Chinese and German officials met in Berlin on Tuesday. After a welcome that included full military honours, Chinese Premier Li Chang and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz met with reporters, where the focus was on the importance of face to face meetings and the role of
3: Berlin and Beijing going forward globally. As two influential countries in the world, China and Germany should work more closely together to make more contributions to world peace and development. China attaches great importance to the development of China-Germany relations and China-EU relations. We are willing to work together with Germany to promote the continuous development of China-Germany and China-EU relations to achieve a higher level of development on a new starting point.
1: Lee also had a message for German CEOs to whom he said the biggest risk is a lack of of cooperation. Schultz has faced questions over a potential decoupling of Germany from China. The German Chancellor dismissed that outright. I've
4: said it often and I have also emphasized it today to my colleague Lee. We have no interest in an economic decoupling from China.
1: Lee described economic conditions in Germany and China as mutually beneficial. Climate change and green technologies are areas where Berlin and Beijing can cooperate. Both the Chancellor and the Premier acknowledge the threats posed to the environment and the potential changes technology could bring.
2: That was Peter Oliver in Berlin with a report. Chinese Premier Niziang is on an official visit to Germany and France this week. In France, he will attend the summit for a new global financing pact. Now, for more about Premier Li Qiang's visit uh, in Europe, we're joined by Dr. Wang Yiwei. He is Rang Manet Chair Professor at Renmin University of China in Beijing. Thank you, Professor Wang, for joining us. It's great to have you back on the show.
5: Thank you for the invitation.
2: Now, Professor, how would you, you heard uh, Premier Li Xiang and, you know, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz uh, for the comments previously with our reporters? So how would you comment on the current level of China, Germany, economic and trade ties?
5: Well, uh, so-called the traditional super globalization is declining and uh, the rising of the global regionalization, which are the three major uh, regions. One, of course, is the Germany-led uh, single market of the European Union. And the second, the China-led RCEP. And the third, the U.S.-led uh, NAFTA uh, 2.0. Uh, Ge- uh, Germany as a, uh, 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 is made in Germany's uh, manufacturing power. China as a world factory, and the U.S. also another uh,
6: mm. uh,
5: producing power. So among these three major uh, forces, of course, China and German relations is very crucial not just for China and the EU relations, but also for the direction and the future of the uh, globalization, we say global regionalizations. China and Germany uh, share many common, uh, similarities as the uh, producing power, uh, manufacturing house, powerhouse, mm-hmm. and also uh, trade surplus and exports, huge exports, so support of globalization. So that's reason uh, probably the only uh, major countries among the West uh, which mm-hmm. have the government consulting mechanism with China. Uh, then China and Germany trade uh, uh, one-third of all the trade between China and the European Union, even before uh, Brexit, so it's very crucial.
2: Indeed. Now, uh, one of the highlights for this trip is that the two, th- two sides agreed that they should become partners in green development. Um, well, first up, uh, Professor, how does green industry you know, development fit into China and Germany's own national development plan, uh, the two countries' national aspirations?
5: Well, as I mentioned, the mm-hmm. three uh, major uh, regions. Mm. Uh, Europe is, of course, uh, focused on uh, sustainable development because uh, without enough uh, resources and uh, materials, uh, limited area. China, uh, because it's 1.4 billion people, so it's also uh, focused on sustainable development. The U.S. actually uh, enjoys full of the resources and uh, uh, materials. So China and Germany, I think, is a natural partner for green uh, development. With the uh, European Union, now led by Germany, as a dual uh, transformation, uh, digital transformation and uh, green transformation, uh, mm. so uh, Germany is actually highlights the uh, cooperation with China, uh, the electronic vehicles, for instance, mm. and also uh, raw materials, and tools of uh, of the uh, Chinese huge market mm. for like uh, electronic uh, cars. So they are uh, need each other. To towards the uh, the, uh, the green and digital transformation for the globalization.
2: Indeed. Um, now, Premier Li Qiang is also visiting France this week, um, I mean, during the latter half of the trip. So uh, first up, in general, Professor, how do you think China views its relationship with France specifically? How important is France for China?
5: Well, France uh, is the only permanent member of the uh, United Nations Security Council uh, uh, in the European Union after mm-hmm. the Brexit. And uh, France, for a long time, uh, had a strategic autonomy. Uh, so that's the reason we will celebrate uh, next uh, January of uh, 60 years, the uh, diplomatic ties. And also aware of the trade, uh, of the culture
6: mm-hmm. and
5: tourism uh, year. So that's very uh, important. Uh, with the uh, French President Macron uh, visit China, and the China and the French cooperation, actually politically and uh, strategically, is also uh, taking a leading role in shaping of the China-EU
6: cooperation.
2: Mm, right, indeed. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, uh, during uh French President Emmanuel Macron's previous visit, a uh, recent visit uh, to China, um, the two leaders actually dis- uh, discussed the topic of the Ukraine war. Um, and certainly, you know, China's um, role in bringing eventual peace uh, in the region is highly anticipated by the international community. Uh, now, Professor, on this issue, where do you think the interests of China and France may align with each other? Others?
5: Firstly, as uh, two P5 uh, P- countries, uh, we also support the uh, UN led international order. That's the respect of sovereignty, territory, integrity. So that's the first. Secondly, uh, peaceful negotiation. Uh, I think war uh, suffered, uh, makes everybody suffered,
6: Right. particularly
5: France and uh, European countries. And China also suffered a lot because China invested in Ukraine, mm. and China, uh, of, of course. Uh, uh, that BI and many uh, corporations because of that war. And also, we, uh, China and France, and in general, and Europe, are uh, very, really, uh, I think, the keen about the it, spillover effect of the Ukraine war, mm-hmm. uh, like a global supply chain, like the food crisis, like the energy crisis. So we need to cooperate.
2: Right. Indeed. Well, another highlight of the trip is that uh, Premier Li Qiang is set to attend the summit for a new global financing pact. Uh, You know, that is a new and major initiative, uh, you know, by French President Emmanuel Macron. Um, According to the statement of the uh, of the summit's website, uh, the summit aims to, quote unquote, build a more responsive, fairer and more inclusive international financial system to fight inequalities. Um, now, Professor, how do you understand that statement? And what do you think France wants to achieve with this summit?
5: Well, three keywords: Responsive. Mm. That means uh, current, uh, the the Western countries are not so much focus on the developing countries, actually. They are too much focused on China, focused on uh, so-called the so-called de-risk, focused on the, uh, the, the Ukraine war. Mm. Uh, but the the, the the developing countries suffer a lot from the pandemic and uh, the Ukraine war. So we need to be uh, more responsible, uh, uh, particularly for China and France as the P5 members. Mm. Second, the uh, failure. The developing countries have suffered, but they don't have enough voice and power in the global governance. Uh, for instance, China, uh, we are not a member of OECD, nor join the Paris Club. So mm-hmm. the many Western countries accuse so called BRI with the damn Trump. So we need to uh, collaborate in this regard. And also inclusiveness. The international uh, system should be more inclusive. So that's the reason uh, French President Macron want to join the BRICS Plus Summit mm. this uh, in South uh, mm.
6: Africa.
2: Mm. Um, also, Professor, we have uh, about one minute to wrap up the conversation, but uh, what's the significance, uh, do you think, for Chinese Premier to attend the summit? And do you find any similarities or differences between the summit and China's uh, global development initiative?
5: Well, definitely. Uh, China as a large developing country and also a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council. We, we always remind the West and the international communities to focus on the development Focus on developing countries. Focus on the deaths Focus on the hunger. Focus on the, the the developing countries suffered like climate change and the pandemic. Mm. This September, we will have the mid-term uh, review of the SDG, and the mm. China will also uh, have the, uh, the the forum on the global uh, China's initiative and global actions in uh, July uh, earlier. So focus on the development. Focus on the GDI and the uh, SDG.
2: Mm, right. Indeed. We'll. You know, certainly keep an eye on how, you know, this trip will continue and what kind of uh, agreements may come out of, uh, you know, the Chinese and French government and what, you know, the global leaders, uh, such as, you know, Premier Li Qiang will say at uh, the summit. But uh, thank you, Professor. That was Dr. Wang Yiwei, Zhang Manet, Chair Professor at Renmin University of China. Coming up, U.S. President Joe Biden hosts Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi for a state Visit. This is World Today. We'll be right back.
1: Hello, my name is Alessandro golombievs Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of The World Today. In my opinion, The World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please come to join us.
2: Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. US President Joe Biden is hosting Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi for a state visit in Washington this week. The White House will hold a state dinner in Modi's honor on Thursday. Biden has only hosted two state visits during his presidency, the first with his French counterpart Emmanuel Macron in December 2022, and the second with South Korean President Yong So yo in April. For more, my colleague Ding Hong earlier spoke with Sultan Ha a retired Air Force officer and author in Pakistan.
3: Now, we understand actually in recent years, U.S. relations with some of its allies like Saudi Arabia and Israel have come under political scrutiny domestically, but Modi's trip to the United States this time is being welcomed with a kind of bipartisan support, even though we understand India is not yet an official ally of the United States. Why do you think this is the case?
7: Well, uh, that's a very uh, interesting question, uh, but it's very relevant in uh, current scenario because uh, the United States, uh, as you rightly mentioned, is uh, losing some of its allies around the world, Saudi Arabia to name one. and. Uh, Of course, uh, China played a very important role in bringing Saudi Arabia and erstwhile uh, hostile nation uh, to Saudi Arabia, Iran, uh, to sign a bilateral uh, agreement. And the same we notice is the case with Israel. But as far as India is concerned, although it is not an official ally, but uh, the Americans have been uh, wooing India and India has also been changing its policies. It likes to... You know make a habit of running with the hare and hunting with the hounds so it is uh, welcoming the opportunity and one of the main reasons is uh, of course uh, to create a to create uh, India as a bulwark against China by the US so that is why this uh, uh, visit is taking place and it is also being given a lot of hype and a lot of importance.
3: Mm -hmm. So, um, strengthening of the U.S.-India defense and security ties, it will likely uh, be a major outcome for this particular trip. So, on the other hand, do you think the fact that India today remains the biggest importer of Russian weaponry and arms across the world will stand in the way of India's security ties with the United States?
7: No, I'm sure they will not stand in the way, although the United States is a very, supposed to be a very mature state, it's supposed to be a world leader but it is not uh, balanced in its attitude towards the world. They have this uh, uh, law called CAATSA, in which any country which is uh, in, uh, indulging into a defense uh, pact as or otherwise getting defense equipment from Russia or for, uh, buying oil from Russia or from Iran is going to be sanctioned. And they sanctioned, the Americans sanctioned uh, one of their allies, Turkey, for the same thing. But the Indians, they went ahead and bought the S-400 Triumph uh, uh, missile system. They are continuing to buy oil as well as fertilizer and a number of things from the Russians. But the uh, Americans, since they need India, they are willing to look the other way. And that is why this will not stand in the way of uh, India's relations.
3: Mm. So before he was elected uh, in the year 2014, we understand Actually, Modi himself was once banned from entering the United States for nearly one decade due to some, you know, human rights uh, issues or controversies that occurred when he was the state official in the Gujarat state. Now, he seems to be embraced by uh, not only the White House, but the Washington overall more than ever. Uh, what do you think this tells us about the us foreign policy mentality do you think the us conduct its foreign policy based on the so-called democracy or human rights or based on the perceived actual interests of the united states
7: i'm afraid uh, you see history tells us a very different story. If we look at uh, the U.S. foreign policy, and especially towards dictators, especially towards despots, and especially about countries which have been engaged in so-called human rights issues, the Americans have only pursued a policy which suits their own needs. I mean, there was uh, Chile's Pinochet and uh, there, were, there were so many other uh, world leaders. Uh, for example, Saddam Hussein of Iran uh, Iraq was once upon a time a a favorite of the United States till it suited them. And the day it didn't suit them, they went ahead and, you see, targeted Iraq. The same goes with, with Mr. Modi. Google, once upon a time, put Mr. Modi as number one in the world list of biggest terrorists. But for about a decade... No visa was issued to Mr. Modi for and uh, giving him permission to enter the U.S., but today he's being embraced because he is a requirement by the White House to, uh, you see, Bill, not only because India is representing a very huge market, but also because India is required in the United States policies in the uh, South Pacific and also a number of other regions in which uh, U.S. believes Mm-hmm. that the countries uh, of uh, uh, like india are going to be a help uh, now you see look at the dichotomy even in washington dc and a number of us states today there are uh, a number of uh, protest rallies which are condemning and these are not being uh, led by Pakistanis uh, but they are being led by uh, Democrats uh, especially women Democrats uh, who are Muslims in the United States Uh, but uh, they are, uh, you see, protesting that uh, Mr. Modi should not be welcomed uh, so heartily or uh, even uh, given such a a big dinner in the White House because of his sad state of uh, human rights. Now what does it say? It says that the actual interests of the U.S., they vary, and uh, the United States is willing to change its own uh, policies towards human rights according to its own needs.
3: Mm. So when it comes to China, do you think India can really end up reaping real benefits if it offers a helping hand to this U.S.? attempt to counter China geopolitically?
7: You see, on one hand, India has uh, become a member of SCO uh, and it uh, recently even hosted uh, a meeting of the SCO uh, foreign ministers in Goa, and uh, as well as, uh, you see, indulges, uh, although it has uh, uh, problems with China, but it is also even willing to enter into trade agreements with China, but it is now trying to reap benefits because it thinks that if it blackballs China and the United States is going to favor it, it's going to uh, give it a number of, um, you see, defense contracts as well as uh, other contracts which are going to be to its benefit and it is uh, willing to condemn China only to please the United States of America.
3: Mm. So, a foreign policy legacy on india's part is having spearheaded this non aligned movement during the Cold War as well as this uh, this terminology called strategic autonomy that is something that the Indian politicians the Indian elites have been very proud of over the years. So, do you think New Delhi can hold on to these? legacies uh, in the geopolitical environment today?
7: Well, I'm afraid not. In fact, uh, India's uh, founding fathers, people like Nehru, people like Gandhi, people like Patel and all, who were actually the founding fathers not only of India, but played a key role in establishing the non-aligned movement, they must now be turning in their graves because India has taken a strategic U-turn. It's no longer strategic autonomy. And uh, the Indian foreign minister was recently heard to say that we are going to reap benefits from wherever we can. And this is a negation of the non-aligned movement, not very distant past. You see, when nine one one occurred, the United States asked the Indians to send troops to Afghanistan. They refused because uh, at that time... They, It was part of the non-aligned movement, and uh, even later. But today, they are willing to, you see, uh, sink their secular policy, their non-aligned movement policy, and do whatever it is to reap maximum benefits.
3: Mm. Oh, by the way, it is reported that some of the CEOs of the U.S. tech giants like Google, Apple, Microsoft, Well, joining Mr. Modi at a state dinner at the White House, do you think India represents a friendly market for American tech companies to establish a footprint from a bigger picture?
7: First of all, you see, India is a huge market. India has a major influence uh, in, in information technology if you notice that uh, the current uh, heads of uh, google and others uh, they are of indian origin so therefore if the u.s tech giants they think that they are going to reap benefits from the huge indian market as well as india's influence in uh, information technology they are willing to partner with the Indians and for that, this uh, this visit by Mr. Modi and especially the very lavish state dinner which is being hosted by Joe Biden at the White House, it's a very big opportunity for the CEOs to be there, to meet Mr. Modi and also reap benefits. Also, please look at it from this way. Till recently, the American companies, they were partnering uh, Chinese uh, technical companies. But today, because of the animosity with the And rivalry with China, the CEOs are willing to dump uh, China and uh, go to bed with India just to make their own benefits.
3: Mm. We understand actually the trade policy of New Delhi has a protectionist tendency, doesn't it?
7: Yeah, it does. Uh, But uh, you see, uh, they are also willing to look for profits. And uh, while they're looking for profit, they are uh, likely to um, compromise their standards as well as the norms uh, of uh, doing good business.
2: There was Sultan Hali, a retired Air, Air Force officer and author in Pakistan, speaking with my colleague Ding Hong. Coming up next, China's Drug Control Authority expresses strong dissatisfaction with the United States as sanctions on Chinese companies and individuals for allegedly involved in drugs. Well, to listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. For further discussions, you can follow us on Twitter at CGTN Radio. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. We'll be right back after a short break.
4: Elaf Ellard, economics professor and member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University, Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in depth and impartial insight, as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business, and blockchain. To prepare for the world tomorrow, join me on World Today.
2: Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. China's drug control authority has expressed a strong dissatisfaction with Washington blaming China over U.S. fentanyl problems and Washington sanctions on Chinese companies it accuses of drug trafficking. China National Narcotic Control Commission says the products mentioned by the U.S. are ordinary commodities, not subject to control in line with the international drug control conventions and the Chinese laws. The U.S. government has recently imposed sanctions on several Chinese enterprises and individuals on the grounds that their products such as chemicals had been smuggled into Mexico to manufacture fentanyl. An official at the Chinese Commission stressed that China has always fulfilled its obligations under the United Nations Convention against illicit traffic in narcotic drugs and psychotropic substances. Now, for more, we're joined by Joseph Syracuse. He is inaugural Dean of Global Futures at Curtin University in Australia. Thank you, Professor Syracuse. It's great to have you back on the show. Now, Professor, um, help us understand, you know, in general uh, of the bigger picture of, uh, you know, the specific backgrounds of the fentanyl crisis in
8: America. Well, the fentanyl crisis is part of the opioid crisis for the past 10 years in America. Number of Americans have turned to painkillers and and the various things like that, and they got they got addicted to these things. And keep in mind that in America's rural or agricultural areas, 40% of the people have no access to doctors or dentists, so a lot of them take painkillers to help with their teeth or their back pains or foot pains or whatever it is. And uh, over 100,000 between the ages of 18 and 49 die each year. Not to, men- to mention. Uh, probably a half a million whose lives are ruined now the united states government sees all these drugs coming in from mexico Mm. and so what they're saying is is that uh china is complicit in in the drug trade and i I can't say this strong enough this is wrong Mm. you cannot blame anybody for the moral crisis or the collapse of uh, of discipline among Americans. This is a, a problem that has to be dealt with at an early age, with education and training and the like. So blame this on another nation. is like blaming Japan for automobile accidents. It doesn't make any sense. It's part of the, the blame game. And uh, I, I think it's, uh, it demonstrates to me that the American at Washington is wrong about this. Secretary of State Blinken is wrong about this, and that uh, the sanctions don't work anyway. I mean, sanctions are they poison diplomacy. Not mm-hmm. only do these sanctions are not only are they inappropriate, but they destroy opportunities to advance in other areas. So the Chinese government has every right to uh, object to the American complaints about this kind of thing.
2: Mm. Well, then, Professor, as you mentioned, you know, the Chinese government has uh, explicitly said, you know, these commodities are not subjected to, the, to control in, in line with these conventions. Uh, I mean, if we consider the bigger picture of U.S.-China relations, um, you know, how does this kind of rhetoric or this blame game by the U.S. will, how does it hurt, you know, the bigger picture of U.S.-China relations, really?
8: Well, I, I heard uh, Secretary of State Blinken say in Beijing yesterday that the most important relationship in the world today mm-hmm. is between Beijing and Washington, between uh, China and the United States. And uh, an issue like this, which has no re- relevant on the larger uh, mm-hmm. uh, relationship, I think is unuseful, this kind of uh, a- 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 attack on uh, Chinese mm-hmm. um, uh, manufacturers and the like. I mean, it plays no useful role. It takes away from the uh, the, the proper aspects of diplomacy, which is about managing the relationships, uh, the relationship between Washington and China in the uh, uh, this part of the 21st century. So, I, I think it's unhelpful. Mm-hmm. It might even be uh, um, very negative, as a matter of fact. It mm-hmm. may have a, an adverse effect, and it solves nothing, absolutely wow. nothing. Mm. So these kind of things, they they sort of uh, they put me off.
2: Well, Professor, as you mentioned, uh, U.S. Secretary of State uh, Anthony Blinken has just uh, concluded his uh, visit to Beijing. Uh, I mean, how do you? I'm sure you've been watching, you know, the development on that gr- uh, front. So, how do you see the messages by both sides uh, after the visit? I mean, it's it's hard it's hard diplomacy, but uh, meeting
8: is always good, right? Yeah, I think so. Look, the mm. the opposite of diplomacy is war. So well, I'm, I'm all no one wants diplomacy. that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, mm. and this is and this is this is personal diplomacy. Your foreign secretary and Blinken, and of course, Blinken had a chance to meet um, uh, President Xi. I mean, mm. this is very, very important. It, it doesn't solve a lot of problems, mm. but what it says is, let's just keep talking about our problems. Uh, and you know, it's not a substitute or America understanding China's position on Taiwan or China's position on freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. I mean, we have, uh, I think the American position in Taiwan is uh, invalid. Uh, freedom of navigation, you can argue until uh, for forever about that. That might be valid. But um, I, I think it, uh, and, and of course, just meeting the Chinese uh, upsets a lot of uh, critics of China in the United States. They're mm-hmm. saying that, uh, that President Biden is engaging in appeasement. Well, the Chinese government hasn't asked the Americans to do anything that they don't <laughs> want to do. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, the Americans can't get the Chinese government to do anything they want to do. You know, the unipolar moment is over. There was once upon a time when the United States might get its way. Though I'll tell you what, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when the United States has never gotten its mm-hmm. way in the world. So. In in a sense, uh, it it doesn't move the dial very much, uh, but on the very positive side, it it engages both powers, which is a a great opportunity to solve problems down the road. Without this particular meeting, I don't think we could go another five years without the the top people meeting each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of stupid, actually. Well, uh, Though, you know, I'm not worried about... um, Military, direct, direct, that's something else. But in terms of state relations, I think uh, they got off to a pretty good start.
2: Mm. Now, Professor, um, we, we have like uh, 40 seconds to wrap up, but uh, the two sides actually just uh, talked about, you know, further strengthen uh, exchanges in academics and in, you know, student exchanges. Do you look forward to that? Uh, what kind of mechanism do you look forward to?
8: Yeah, that, that's very good. I, I think mm. the people-to-people the people exchanges are, are very important because, you know, while, while governments have a difficult time dealing with each other, people don't. You know, mm. the, the Chinese students who go among the American people and the American students who go among the Chinese people, they get a deeper understanding of what's going on in these places than maybe people in Beijing and Washington who are sometimes cut off from reality. I think it's a very positive move. And um, I'd like to see the Chinese numbers increases in places like America and even from Australia, too.
2: Right. Well, as they say, you know, the goodwill of the people are always key. But thank you, Professor. That was Joseph Syracuse at Curtin University in Australia. This is World Today. We'll be right back after a short break.
1: Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China-area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China, and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today.
2: Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Bangladesh has become the latest country to express interest in joining the BRICS group of nations. Application from the country is expected to be discussed at the group's summit in South Africa in August. Mao Ning from China's foreign ministry said China is ready to welcome more members to BRICS, adding BRICS is committed to upholding multilateralism and vigorously advancing reform of the global governance system. Other than Bangladesh, it's reported that 19 other countries have expressed interest in joining the bloc. The BRICS bloc is made up of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. The emerging markets bloc represents over 40% of the world's population and over 30% of the global GDP. Now for more, my my colleague Xu Wen spoke to Herman Laurel, founder of the Philippine BRICS Strategic Studies Group, a think tank in Philippine in global affairs.
9: First of all, Herman, Bangladesh wants to join in the BRICS. What's their consideration behind the move?
4: Well, I think uh, Bangladesh, like many other countries and the rest of the world, uh, especially the countries of the global south, has been very disillusioned by the uh, Western economic, financial, and development uh, paradigm. Uh, We have lived with the Western paradigms uh, for development uh, for the past half century, which demands uh, before an economy is assisted with some investments and loans and and so on. Mm -hmm are made demands to liberalize their economy, to privatize their industries, to deregulate their uh, economic sector, and that has redounded to a uh, great um, uh, sacrifice of the interests of the uh, countries uh, involved. I think also very recently, the uh, sense of the, uh, betrayal by sensed by the Global South when uh, the Western banking system and investment uh, banking system confiscated hundreds of billions of dollars worth of deposits of countries that did not toe their line, the line of the West. Mm -hmm. I think all this contributed. At the same time, the promise of BRICS took a long time to evolve, but I think uh, this uh, promise uh, has uh, blossomed in the past five years. Uh, The countries such as five uh, core members of uh, the BRICS as huge markets, Mm -hmm. huge sources of investments, and does not demand such uh, onerous conditions as the Western financial system demands of them. So I think uh, that is a great attraction to Bangladesh.
9: Would you say joining the BRICS partnership is becoming a new trend around the globe. And last year alone, the dollar's share in global reserves dropped it by eight points from 55% to 47% compared to 73% 20 years ago in 2001. So would you say that's part of the reason why uh, more and more developing countries are seeking to reduce their reliance on the dollar as both a reserve currency and a measure for international trade. And that's become a trend.
4: Well, definitely, that is uh, a fundamental attraction of the BRIC system now and the uh, uh, evolving uh, de-dollarization with uh, China's uh, largest uh, market in human history uh, at the core of the development of the transactions in the domestic currencies of each country. I think uh, people like Saudi Arabia have seen the necessity and the potential of going in that direction, and the rest of the world are uh, in expectation of the changes that this will bring. Mm
6: -hmm. It
4: will bring, uh, of course, uh, the end of the dictatorship of the U.S. dollar, which has been abused by the United States of America, causing so much inflation in the rest of the world when they manipulate their uh, interest rates and so on. Uh, I think uh, this uh, de-dollarization and the shift to other currencies, local currencies, national currencies, is a very, very promising uh, evolution of of the system, and uh, BRICS is uh, at the forefront of this.
9: Mm, I see. Well, uh, Herman, speaking of building a multipolar currency world, what role does the new development bank of BRICS could play? Could you elaborate more about how the bank differs from current existing multinational financial institutions, such as the IMF and the World Bank, in terms of their operational processes when lending loans or providing financial support to developing countries?
4: Yes, the problem with the Western uh, system from the past five decades is that they demand so many changes to the domestic uh, uh, system of the countries that they say they are going to help. As I explained that uh, even the Philippines suffered so much from the imposed conditions of having to privatize so many industries, including electricity, water, and so on, deregulating uh, trade, deregulating, uh, removing tariff protection from some of the industries that are essential to the domestic economy, uh, and the uh, liberalization of the financial system, and so on. So there's a great deal of interference in the internal economic management of each country that they say they're assisting. We do not see that uh, in the uh, system of the BRICS uh, and of, all, of course the New Development Bank. So uh, this is uh, very um, conducive uh, to the development of so many diverse countries in this Global South and in the rest of the world. So I, this is one of the major attractions of of the system that uh, BRICS is offering in terms of development aid uh, and uh, the development investments Mm -hmm. in the countries that are now lining up to join the BRICS.
9: Mm. So it's very interesting to note that recently French President Emmanuel Macron has reportedly requested an invitation from South African President Cyril Ramaphosa to attend the BRICS summit. Uh, scheduled for August in South Africa. How do you interpret this signal sent by Macron?
4: Well, I think this was a pleasant uh, shock to the world uh, who has, which has been watching the developments of BRICS because this is a breakthrough. This is an interest uh, expressed from the one of the major Western countries, one of the G7, that uh, sometimes uh, people tend to think as a uh, as uh, perceiving the BRICS as a competition to the G7 and even the G20, which of course it is not. But the um, the open interest expressed by the French president shows that even the Western countries are now taking BRICS seriously. Uh, even if in the past 20 years, they have tended to take it lightly and very often even uh, demeaned it. But now uh, BRICS has gained the recognition that even uh, one of the major, maybe the top three, top four G7 countries Mm -hmm. is expressing interest.
9: I see. Actually, the beginning of this year, the combined GDP of the BRICS nations was 31.5% of the global total GDP, surpassed that of the G7 nations, which was at 30.7% this year. So that really tells a lot about where these emerging markets of bloc are going.
4: Yes, yes. And uh, that shows the BRICS countries are overtaking uh, the G7 uh, in terms of uh, share of global GDP. And also, of course, uh, the population that uh, the BRICS countries represent is, uh, I think, almost 40% of the world population. So it is uh, shifting the gravity from the west to the east, certainly, and to the global south. So I think uh, this uh, will continue to unfold, uh, and very rapidly, in the next few months and uh, maybe the next two years, uh, and uh, now we we're, were lo- really looking forward to seeing a brave new world emerging that is fairer, uh, more just and and, and uh, certainly uh, goes well for the prosperity of the poorer countries uh, as we uh, move towards the future.
2: Herman Laurel, founder of the philippine. Briggs Strategic Studies Group, a think tank in the Philippines, speaking with my colleague Xiawen. This is World Today. We'll be right back.
7: Hi, I'm Einar Tangen, a political and economic analyst and senior fellow at the independent Taiher Institute. World Today is news without the hype and business commentary that is informed and up to date presenting the facts, and asking incisive questions. So join us if you are someone who needs to know what is happening in China as it is happening.
2: Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Production and sales of new energy vehicles grow significantly in China in May, with output reaching 713,000 units. Meanwhile, China has vowed to build a high-quality charging infrastructure system by 2030. The move is the latest to shore up the development of new energy vehicles in the country. The government also said it would ramp up NEV sales in rural areas. For more on this, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Wang Dan, chief economist of Hang Seng Bank, China. So
10: Dan, first of all, a lack of charging facilities is the most significant obstacle to the growth of a country's uh, new energy vehicle industry. And China now wants to ramp up the NEV sales in rural areas. So what should be done to provide a charging network, especially in the rural areas?
0: The most difficult part to build charging pools in a rural region is that uh, there are not enough NEV sales to start with and most of the housing are self-made. Uh, they could actually install private charging pool if they want to. Um, so there is a lack of demand for public um, public uh, constructed charging pools. And there are a lot more land available in the rural area, um, but electricity provision can be a major constraints for many parts of Chinese uh, villages as well. Since we know most of the electricity has been prioritizing the use for uh, manufacturing and for urban households. When it comes to the rural electricity, um, they usually do not meet the standard um, to actually power many charging poles. Mm.
10: And China's EV industry is at the forefront now of the global competition. So how did the Chinese EV makers achieve
9: this?
0: Uh, Chinese EV makers has... Uh, Uh, gone through a path that's very different from the traditional fueled uh, engine vehicles. Um, Because uh, to start with, there is a very different financing system. Uh, It's more like the financing for startups rather than to build uh, the built up of a traditional car factory. For Chinese entrepreneurs, they were well-trained by the dot-com era Many of the internet companies like Alibaba and Tencent, they were at the forefront uh, in, that, uh, in that era. And many people actually working for them came out and got into the EV industry. They had a great experience in raising enough funds from the capital markets, uh, either from the stock market or from VCPs, And then they know how to make it work, even in the beginning, they might incur a loss. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to the car production, it's also different. The traditional fuel engine cars they rely on the full supply chain um, that's controlled by that own co- by that one company. But for NEV makers, they might have the industrial design, but they usually rely on some other factories to produce it for them. And it's more or less more similar to the Foxconn uh, model to produce iPhones rather than uh, the BMW model to to produce cars. Mm.
10: And Chinese EV makers are now in Thailand and other, you know, Southeast Asian region countries for investment and building factories. What are the main reasons of that?
0: And those Chinese EV makers want to get closer to the consumer market. Uh, In the beginning of China's overseas investment, usually people want to uh, get a stake Uh, or invest heavily in the stake of mining or some major metals. Even now, that's a major driving force. Um, But uh, increasingly, uh, since China is getting this uh, comparative advantage in the battery technology and in NEV technology, then they could actually build up an ecosystem closer to the consumer market and still be competitive. And that's why we see a shore up. The investment in this uh, sector Uh, in the broader Asia. So far, the Philippines, Malaysia, and uh, Thailand are the main markets for China's NEV. So there's also a lot of incentives for Chinese companies to directly set up factories there.
10: Mm -hmm. So global EV makers are trying to gain a market share of China's market among the fierce competition. Tesla increases market share after cutting prices in China. So what are your thoughts on this price war?
0: Uh, The price war was quite fierce in the past few months. But it turned out it's a failed strategy for a lot of the car makers. Uh, It doesn't matter if you were in the traditional engine fuel uh, car industry or the NEV industry. Uh, People didn't buy a new car, not because the price was too expensive, but mainly because um, they were too constrained by income. And the subsidies for NEVs also backed away uh, in December last year. So people want to wait a bit longer before they decide whether they want to buy a new car. Uh, I generally don't think a price war is a good strategy for uh, any brand, because if it's a good brand, usually you don't want to uh, jeopardize the branding by lowering the price for no obvious reason. Mm. Tesla is a master in lowering the brand, and there's the kind of customer loyalty to Tesla so uh, for domestic and uh, EV makers, because there are so many of them now, mm-hmm. we are going to see more fierce competition and a consolidation probably in the years to come.
6: Mm.
10: And China's EV maker BYD surpassed Tesla as the world's largest EV maker last year. Its net income jumped more than 400%. So what do you think are some of the main reasons for this big profits jump for BYD?
0: The biggest driver for BYD's uh, revenue is because of the increase in sales. Uh, much of the purchase was from the public sector. Um, the taxi industry also bought tons of BYD uh, in South China. Um, besides that, BYD itself is the most integrated factory uh, in the entire industry. It not only controls the production of battery, but also controls the production of the, of the whole car. So it has a scale that other brands cannot compete. And that also gives it a high negotiation power when it comes to the input prices, especially the raw material.
10: And more electric cars have been sold in China than in the rest of the world combined, while Chinese EV makers are also busy with exporting to international markets. So what are their main targeted overseas market and what's the outlook?
0: The main targeted overseas market is in Europe. Um, For China's NEV exports last year, about half was exported to Europe. About one quarter was exported in broader Asia. So European market as a whole is the main driving force for not just trade, but also for investment. Um, Behind that, the Main constraint was actually the 2035 um, climate change target that EU has to achieve. They don't have the production capacity for either the battery or NEV, so they rely on foreign investment. And Chinese companies are really taking this opportunity to edge into this market.
10: Mm -hmm. And I also want to ask you a question about China's tech giant Huawei's investment in the auto business. Actually, their investment is focused on building components for intelligent vehicles, including self-driving software uh, platforms. They said they don't make cars. So why is Huawei interested in investing in self-driving and NEV technologies rather than car making?
0: Um, For Huawei, it has a strong capacity in R&D. Um, the research team is quite strong. Uh, in the previous, previous years, uh, we can see the decline in the total revenue of Huawei. So now it's also looking, on, looking for new growth engine for its own business. Uh, autonomous driving is really the new battleground for the next generation of technologies. Um, Huawei has an edge in communication chips and AI technology. And these are the key to enable autonomous driving. So for Huawei, it's a natural step um, to utilize its biggest strength.
2: There was Wang Dan, chief economist of Seng Bank China, speaking with my colleague Zhao Yang. Well, that's all the time we have for the Citizen of World today. A quick recap of the headlines. Chinese Premier Li Qiang visits France and is set to attend the summit for a new global financing pact. U.S. President Joe Biden is hosting Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi for a state visit this week in Washington. And Bangladesh formally applies to join BRICS. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, download our podcast by searching World Today. For further discussions, follow us on Twitter at CGTN Radio. I'm Liu Kun. Thank you for listening. Bye.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Zoon Ahmed Khan, currently based in Tsinghua University. World Today is an excellent initiative to discuss current affairs by including experts from across the globe. I've always enjoyed our thought-provoking discussions and wish the team even more success and impact in the future.